So we've been in the book of Ephesians. This is our last Ephesians sermon for the summer. We're going to pick back up again in September when we cover marriage. Uh, But this is one of the most amazing passages in all of the Bible. It should be life-changing to us. It's been so helpful to me as it's washed over to me, so hopefully I can communicate it. Let's pray that I do. God, thank you for your abundant grace. All we have to do is stand back and see how much you have provided to us from the little details, from knowing that we have life and breath to the big details, knowing that in Jesus Christ we have all things. He has saved us by his blood and now we are welcomed into your life, into your house, into your kingdom as your children. God, we do not always see that and believe it and so I pray this morning we would take extra steps to do that. that we would take extra steps to get into the flow of your goodness and grace, what the Apostle Paul's, the filling of the Spirit. God, use us now. Speak to us now. And speak to me, through me, your weak and humble servant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think that there are quite a few reasons that you can and that people do doubt Christianity. There's lots of reasons you can doubt Christianity. You can doubt, for example, the truth claims of Christ. That he lived, that Jesus lived, that he died on the cross and that three days later he rose from the dead. So you can disclaim the miracles. You can doubt those miracles. You can doubt Christ's claim to be the only way unto salvation. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says very directly. You can doubt Christianity because of that. What no one ever seems to call into question, though, is one of Christianity's most astounding and honestly confounding claims. That it promises joy. Joy. Not a few highs here or there. Not a generally fine and good life. The Christian faith promises a deep, enduring, satisfying happiness. A joy that does not wear out under the strains and pains of life. A joy that covers the believer in peace and harmony and rest. It is a claim so audacious that if you do not believe it, it is laughable. But that is its claim. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, speaking to the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John 10.10, this is Jesus speaking. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it to the full. 1 John 1, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, with His Son, Jesus Christ and we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Christianity promises something so ridiculous, so audacious, complete 
joy. And this is seen so clearly in our text today. Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now what does he say right after that? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just listen quickly. These are not commands. These are outcomes. When we are filled with the Spirit by the Spirit, it says that we will make melody in the, to the Lord in our hearts. And then it says we will be able to thank Him in all circumstances for everything. Our joy will be so durable that it will be able to withstand anything. And there is no more thing that is more audacious than this. Here's a good reason to reject Christianity. It sounds too good to be true. Unless it is really true. J.R.R. Tolkien believed that it was true. He was a believer. This very vision of joy, as he called it, this fairy tale come true, was weaved in and out of his writings. In the last book of The Lord of the Rings, Samwise Gamgee was wrestling against the darkness with his trusted friend Frodo, wrestling against the shadow. They were in Mordor. And then he saw something. This is the account of that. Sam struggled with his own weariness. And he took Frodo's hand, and there he sat silent till deep night fell. There peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now for a moment, his own fate and even his masters ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, And putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep and untroubled sleep. This life is often a shadow. This life is often darkness, an ache, a weariness, a sadness. But Tolkien's myth is our truth. That there exists a piercing star, a radiating light, a clear and cold shaft of hope, and it is readily available to us. It is not the promise of endless, ungrounded emotional highs. It's not like that. It is a promise of hope so deep and durable that there will be mourning in that in our mourning there will even be singing. And Paul's point in this text is that you do not have to Get drunk to get it. True and perfect joy comes rather from the roaring fire of the Spirit poured into your life and not from anything else. I want to make sure that we are on the same page. This passage is not so much about drinking as it is the Spirit who lives and longs to be with us. So read verse 18 again. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he's, a say, he's saying essentially two things, that there is an asymmetry and symmetry between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. If I tried to get away with that on my own, if Paul wasn't making this analogy, you would all leave. But he's doing it. There is an asymmetry and a symmetry between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit. There's a, there are ways they are alike and ways they are not alike. It's vital to know the difference. So let's think it through. So when we are drunk, when we drink to drunkenness, what is happening? When we drink to drunkenness, what are we doing? Well, at the very bottom of it, it is something that you do on purpose. Now, it's irresponsible for sure, but it's not something that happens out of your control, right? Paul was speaking to a people who were intentionally drinking to get drunk. Drunkenness, for the most part, is an act of our will. If we stop at one glass of wine or beer, if we stop before we get truly affected, then our purpose could simply be that we want to enjoy what that beer or wine tastes like, to enjoy it. But if we let ourselves go, if we pour drink after drink after drink, what are we doing? Now here's the point. We are trying to change how we feel. Your drinking to drunkenness is a way of changing things, changing your life, changing your psyche, your emotional state on your terms. It is an attempt at control. When we say things like, boy, I need a drink, we're not saying, boy, I really want to have a nice glass of wine to enjoy its taste. We are saying, I had a hard day, and I want to forget about it. I want to feel differently. Drunkenness ultimately is a move to take our bodies and minds and even our, sp- and our spirits in control and to put them in an altered state. I do not want to feel this way, and so I am going to change it. Now, is that true control? At first, I think it is. It, it is true control. But where it leads us to is not actually control. It leads to its opposite. Verse 18 again, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now that is a Christianese word, isn't it? Debauchery. Who uses that word? Really, it means something akin to recklessness. When you drink too much, when you get drunk, you lose control. And so while the act of drinking in and of itself is a power trip, the end result is an incredible weakness. And then beyond this, you know what has to happen to get to back to that point, to get to that point of feeling like you're in an altered state, to get that in-control, out-of-control feeling. You have to drink more and more and more, and you know where that leads. And that is drunkenness. What about being filled by the Spirit? Well, that actually works in the opposite way. Drunkenness starts with you in control and leads to you losing control. But with the Spirit, Paul is saying that you must first give your control over to Him. That is how it begins. That is a passive act. That is why he says, be filled. The only way you can be filled is if you go to the filling and let it happen to you. You are letting go. There is a submission. He is filling you. You do not fill yourself like you do with drink. But when He fills you, what happens is, is the opposite, that you become self-controlled. 
that you become become totally self-controlled. Look at verse 15 above this one. Ephesians 5.15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Okay, stop there. So he's saying essentially that in this life we are walking on a tightrope. These days are evil. In other words, these days are difficult. It is hard to live in this life. So be careful. Walk in wisdom. Use your time well. Seek the Lord's wisdom. Now, how do you get that? Do you just try harder? Do you just buckle down? No, that's why he says, verse 18, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled by the Spirit. You walk in wisdom when you are filled by Him. To be filled by the Spirit leads to verses 15 through 17. It leads to an incredible self-control, a control over your mind, your body, your speech. It is like getting on a plane. Getting on a plane for the first time, especially when you do it later in your life, is utterly terrifying. So my mom didn't fly on a plane until she was 33 years old. It was just that time and that place. She didn't like planes. She finally did, and it was terrifying. When you get into a plane, what are, your, what are you doing? You're actively getting on the thing, but then that's it. You are done. You have to go wherever that pilot wants you to go. Huge mechanical device, thousands of pounds, and you are strapped in for the ride. But then you remember you're going to Hawaii. It's the only way there. And that is a good thing. When we submit to the Spirit, we hand Him our lives, but what we gain in return is amazing. But unlike getting drunk, the Spirit's power, the Spirit's filling does not offer us diminishing returns, does it? The more we go to him, the more we are filled. The more we are filled, the more we grow in wisdom and grace and self-control. The way the Greek works in this when he says be filled by the Spirit, it means a continuous action. Be continually filled by the Spirit. And what he is doing, just to give you some base level information, is that he is making us like Christ. When he fills us, he is making us like Christ. John Stott said this, if excessive alcohol dehumanizes, turning a human being into a beast, the fullness of the Spirit makes us more human, for He makes us like Christ. So let's take this up a floor. Let's go up another floor. So we've said that drunkenness is the attempt to control our lives. What, though, are we trying to control? What are we trying to control when we get drunk Here's the truth. When we get drunk, we are trying to control our difficulties. We are trying to control the pains, the fears, our terrible frustrations. If our circumstances in life can't give us joy, then the bottle will. We will take control over it. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in the 20th century. Before he was a preacher, he was a, a medical doctor. And he came to this section in his sermon series and he said this. He says, you know what alcohol is, right? It's a depressant. And depressants don't make you depressed. Chemical depressants depress first and foremost the highest centers of all in the brain. 
They control everything that gives a man self-control, wisdom, understanding, discernment, judgment, balance, the power to assess everything. In other words, everything that makes a man behave at his very best and highest. He is absolutely right. Why do we drink to drunkenness? Why do we allow certain parts of our wills to be squashed, limited, depressed? Because it helps. And helps us deal with the complexities and difficulties of life. Or so we think. Some drink to gain courage. They need to have their mind and will and emotions turned off so that they can take a test or ask a girl out or be the life of the party. Some drink to forget all that is wrong in their lives. They drink to forget their stress, their heartache. They suppress their emotions just to feel a little bit better. Some drink to take away their fears. Your fear of the future, the fear of dying, the fear of failure. Drinking, at least for a little while, does work. It does take away those things, but it is short-lived. And to get there, you must close yourself down. You're not opening yourself up. You're turning the lights out. You are shutting down who you are. Are. Now, here is where the Spirit's work is almost totally different. Now, the Spirit does affect us. There's an affecting power of Him. His feeling is so deeply affected to our senses, our joy and courage. But it works in the very opposite way. He does not work to depress, but to enliven. He does not work to minimize and close and dampen. He works to open and expand and maximize. Lloyd-Jones goes so far as to say that the Holy Spirit is like a stimulant. If it were possible to put the Holy Spirit into a textbook of pharmacology, he writes, I would put him under the stimulants, for that is where he belongs. He really does stimulate. He stimulates every faculty, the mind and the intellect, the heart and the will. He is a stimulant. A stimulant. For he increases our capacity. One way to say it is that he, and way to think about it is that he makes us to see. He makes us to see those things that we have not seen before. As you are filled, you see more fully and clearly. You see the world as it really is. You are open to the truth of who you are, of who God is, and what is happening all around you. There's an old myth that says that humans only use 10% of their brains. I don't know how many movies have been made on that premise alone. We only use 10% of our brains. It's not true. It's not true. We use all of our brains. I don't think that we use all of our emotions and our spirits. Though. We are deadened, and the Spirit, when He comes to us and fills us, He makes us alive. He makes us to see. Now, on the one hand, this means something serious, that He is not going to take the difficulties away. He does not want you to suppress the hard things in your life. He wants you to have clarity about what brings you pain, what makes you fearful, that is scary. But depressing those things is short-lived. It is not ultimately helpful. What is needed is not just to see those things, though, but to see all things. Is to see this, that our problems are not the most powerful things in our lives. When you are filled with the Spirit, friends, you see the whole truth. Yes, you see yourself, you see your shortcomings, you see all the things that could happen to you, the things that have happened to you. But when you are filled by the Spirit, 
you see that you are not alone. You are in a world where you are loved and cared for. Tim Keller says it this way, the Spirit does not make you less aware of your problems, but more aware of your resources. I think this is what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 1 when he says this. He says, says, I pray that you would have the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, he's talking to Christians. He is talking to people who already believe. So he's not saying exactly, I pray that you believe. He is saying, I pray that you see what you have already believed. I pray that it finally becomes real to you. I pray that as the Spirit fills you, that you would know what is truly there. When we are filled by the Spirit, we see fully that the truth is real and that the truth is that we are children of the Most High, the Most Powerful God. 1 John 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. My favorite picture of this is from the Old Testament. It is when Elisha the prophet was surrounded by the armies at Dothan, the the chariots, the horses. His servant wakes early in the morning and walks out of their tent and he looks and he goes, oh no. He sees all this army in front of him and he runs back to his master, to Elisha. And he says, what will we do? And Elisha says to him, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, what is he talking about? How can there be more there than the servant can see? There was only one army and they were not there for them. They were there to kill them. It goes on to say that Elisha prays, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. When you are filled with the Spirit, you see, you see. The greatest Christians, the ones who we would say are spirit-filled, are not stronger than you. They definitely do not have better circumstances than you. And yet they are content. They have more self-control than I do. Why are they so joyful? So do they have something that we don't? And the answer is yes, but it is nothing from inside of them. It is that they were so hungry that they went after it, this thing with all of their heart, all of their empty heart to the Spirit's filling. Friends, have you been filled? Are you being filled? Maybe you're still getting drunk. Maybe it's on alcohol. It's possible. It's a problem. But I want you to see that it may be something else too. Is there something in your life that you look to depress your senses? Something that you use to get drunk on? What do you tap into to depress your fear, your sadness? Paul says to you, do not destroy your life. Do not cheapen it. Do not minimize who you are. Expand it. Enlarge it. Go to the Spirit. Be filled by 
him. Now, how does he fill us? How does he fill us? And what does he fill us with? Paul writes a very similar passage in the book of Colossians. This happened after the, the, the letter to the Ephesians. And he talks about the same things, about singing to the Lord out of your heart, being thankful in all circumstances. But he adds this, and I think it's the key, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what is he talking about? He's talking about truth. The Spirit fills you with the truth of Jesus Christ and all that comes with it. The Spirit fills you with the truth of Christ and all that comes with it. In John 16, Jesus predicted this. He said, The Spirit will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The reason we don't walk in control, the reason we walk in fear and pain, the reason we look to other things to minimize our minds and spirits is because ultimately we are not happy in Christ. We have not allowed the Spirit to fill us with Him, our Savior and our King. But we must. We must go there. It is so simple. But it is not easy. Nothing good is easy. We must lay down our lives and go to Him. We must go to the Word and drink deeply. We must commune with him in prayer and meditation. We must go to him with each other, speaking the truth in love, singing songs and spiritual songs amongst us, shouting up our prayers of thanks and happiness to the Lord. You must go there, and when you do, you will see him. And yes, you will see your circumstances. You will see and know the struggles before you. You will see your shortcomings, your sin, your guilt, and your shame. You will see your suffering like an army surrounding you. But as you are filled, you will have your eyes opened and you will see that you are not alone. For you will see him. You will see Jesus in all of his glory, his life and his death and his resurrection the beautiful Christ, the bright star like a cold shaft that will smite your heart and bring you hope, a hope so deep, deep and rich that you will have joy. Friends, that is the promise to you. It is audacious, almost laughable, except that it is true. And so go to the Spirit and be filled by Him. Let's pray. God, we go now to do one of those things that you have called us to that will fill us. It will literally fill us with the bread and the juice, but it is meant to point, to remind us of your great truth, that you are God, that you are loving and joyful and happy, and that you long for your people to know you and trust you and believe you. You will remind us the truth yet again that we did not deserve this. We do not deserve your love for we have forsaken you. We have condemned you. And because of this, we stand condemned. But out of your great love and joy, you sent Jesus Christ in our stead 
He died in our place. He bore our sins, our iniquities, our shame. He paid for the righteousness that he, that he now has given to us. That is the filling of the Spirit. To be full of Him. And so I pray this morning that all would receive and take with great joy. God, for those this morning who have been out of the Spirit for so long, for too long, they feel empty. God, may you help them to stand up and walk and get into your streams of righteousness and mercy. God, for those who do not believe, I pray for belief for them. Help their unbelief. They long for joy. I pray that, it can be, that they can see that it can only be found in you and give you their hearts, their lives this morning. And God, for this church, I pray that we are a spirit-filled church. Not that we are the craziest church. Not that we have the highest emotions or the most people, but that we have the most Christ. That our lives are so filled that we become a display of His goodness and mercy and hope. God, now prepare us. Prepare us as we go to the table together. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ has welcomed us by his blood to take and eat and drink and live for our joy. The Lord's Supper is the physical reminder of God's forgiveness to us. It is our act of remembrance, the remembrance of the good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ came and lived and died for us. He took our sin debt and granted to us pardon. We do not bring to this table our money, our works, our righteousness. We bring to this table our desire, our empty hearts desiring to be filled. So I pray that you come with expectation. I do need you to understand that this table is for those who have trusted on Christ. If you have not yet given your heart to Jesus, don't take this supper this morning. But it is an amazing opportunity for, your, to, for you to respond to his call and take him. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. Walk in to his filling. His generosity is for you. Now before we go to take this, let's pray together. Oh God, in your abundant mercy, may we see again and know and believe who you are. You are the good God and you love us. Fill us with those truths right now in our minds and our hearts. And may we take you, take you fully this morning. Through Christ our Lord, amen.